This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Coming up on today's show, a recent poll into who is the most popular Canadian Prime Minister in modern times. It might not be who you think. Hockey Canada reopening investigation into the sexual assault allegations surrounding the 2018 World Junior Team. A major solar storm could make what happened with Rogers last Friday look like nothing. You know, it's tough being Prime Minister of Canada. It's not an easy gig. And no matter how long you're in, no matter what you accomplished, good or bad, when you're done the majority of the country is not going to like him. That's just math. That's that's science. The polls put favorability ratings for uh, prime ministers almost always under 50%, or popularity anyway. Um, so here, here's the breakdown. Most recently, we've got Brian Mulroney, 36%. Pretty good. Not bad at all. Stephen Harper, a lot of you on the text line. Stephen Harper was the best prime minister. Okay, you can feel he was the best prime minister, but does that make him the most popular prime minister? In Alberta, sure. More than half the population in Alberta likes him, but nationally it drops down to like 35. Trudeau, Pierre, the first Trudeau, beats him by a hair. He's at 37. But the winner, running away with it, Jean Chrétien. He tops 40%. He's at 41%. And we're going to have a discussion now with Jack Jedwab, who is the president of the Association for Canadian Studies and one of the people behind this polling. Jack, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. No problem, a pleasure. You know, when you take a look at this, I'm really not that surprised. Now, you don't have to agree with Kretchen on everything, but it's pretty hard to deny the fact that he was a likable guy. And, and as I said earlier, for someone in the media, good Lord, was he a great quote. Always, right? Yeah, and, you know, a lot of this is about what people retain, you know, in terms of the period uh, between when this particular prime minister left and where we are today. So the more time elapses... Uh, the more likely some people filter out things that are negative. And so unless there's some real standout thing uh, that uh, tarnished this particular prime minister, uh, there'll be a tendency to only remember him as a nice guy. That's it, you know. That's it. The little guy from Shawinigan, right? Exactly. And that connected. He really did. And I think that's a a skill that some politicians have in, uh, you know, and you can rank where they have it in terms of their their opponents and and other prime ministers. He had that. He had that connect with the, the everyman ability. Right, especially when you compare with some of the other prime ministers on the list. They don't seem to have the same ability as Jean Chrétien to connect with the people, to have one of you and so forth there. You know, they appear a bit more elitist, whether that's accurate or not. Uh, I'm not suggesting they are elitist, but that's the appearance that some of them yeah. seem to give to the population. You know, when you're talking about Mulroney, I think, you know, like you say, it depends what we retain, because there's no question Brian Mulroney was always very charm- charming, very likable, but he had no end of issues, right? I mean, he's the guy that brought in the GST, but still, in terms of this ranking, he does fairly well. Yeah, especially in Quebec, and actually does okay in Alberta too. Uh, people tend to forget these things over time, which uh, you know is at the advantage of the uh, prime ministers. And you know, as an example, uh, uh, when I uh, taught a political science course, I guess it was about ten years ago, uh, I talk about Jacques Parizeau, uh, Premier of Quebec. The late Jacques Parizeau happened not to like 
personally very much. Uh, but a lot of my students uh, didn't know who he was in the single political science course. And I was very surprised by wow. that. I was like, how can you not know who he is? And, you know, he was, uh, you know, premier in the 1990s, but I keep forgetting that a lot of my students were in diapers in the 1990s, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so that, you know, this is what we tend to, 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 to not take sufficiently consideration. It's that, you know, for the, for this generation, Brian Mulroney is, uh, you know, they have no familiarity with Brian Mulroney and at least the recent generation, yeah. unless you're 45 plus, you know, so. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Stephen Harper's really interesting, because like I say, we were talking about this, and on the text line, a lot of people really, really like Stephen Harper in Alberta. That We know that. We know that for a fact. But you go outside of Alberta, and his popularity, his likability really drops off. And uh, he's just, he, that common man, that likability, that didn't connect with Stephen Harper. No, definitely not. At least in, in Alberta, he connects very, very strongly. But outside of Alberta, he does not do that well. Actually, he does poorly than almost any other ones of the prime ministers on this on this list. Uh, and it's funny you think he's an Alberta-born guy, and yet he's not, right? So yeah. Uh, but uh, he certainly resonates very positively in Alberta. The rest of the country, and he's very fresh in people's minds. So I don't get as much of the I don't know because in a lot of the prime ministers, uh, for example, Sir Johnny Macdonald, Wilfred Laurier, Mackenzie King, you get very high percentage of people who simply don't know because sure. they've only learned about them through a history book they've read. Uh, but uh, the more recent ones, particularly Stephen Harper, are the is, is the one where. Uh, there's much higher recognition. 81% of people basically have a response where, you know, as uh, the next one on this list, well, Trudeau and Chrétien, they're more in the sort of uh, 70% areas or 70% plus areas in terms of people who say they know or are able to comment on them. Yeah, and... I, and, and you get a Mackenzie King, the majority say, I don't know who, I don't know who he is. Exactly. 53%. So. Uh, and when we talk about Stephen Harper, I mean, policy-wise and everything like that, like you say, that stuff fades away. And, and I'm getting texts people saying, remember when he shook his hand, son, when he dropped his son's hand when he dropped him off at school? It's that awkwardness that seems to resonate. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in, in, there's also an ideological issue probably for other parts of the country, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, where they just don't, they, it comes across as uh, as very uh, much on the small C conservative side, which doesn't resonate as, as much with uh, some parts of the country. And, and and I guess people also remember you're as good as your last sort of performance for a lot of people too. And that's, uh, in Stephen Harper's case, his last performance was the loss of the election to Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. So that may, you know, not affect him as much in Alberta, but people remember his last election campaign and, you know, and that was a hard campaign for him, actually. And, and, that, and that's the thing that probably is fresh, more fresh in people's minds when, uh, you know, when offering some judgment on this. And speaking of ideological differences, that brings us to Peter Elliott Trudeau, which uh, outside of Alberta is probably viewed very differently. We know he, he has very little popularity uh, in this province, but overall he, he didn't do bad. He, he beat both Mulroney and Stephen Harper. Yeah, he does really well in Ontario, actually. Other parts of the country, it's a bit uneven. Even in Quebec, he's not doing as well as some people might assume in Quebec. And I happen to think some of the, the ranking for Pelia Trudeau uh, is related to his son's performance yeah. and how people feel about his son. And, you know, because, again, a certain generation will not know much about Pierre Trudeau, even though, you know, he's um, got some branding, including on our airport here in my hometown of Montreal. Uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, you know, the recognition of him probably, as I said, is probably linked somewhat to his son and that affects his rating in Quebec. He doesn't do very well. Interesting, interesting. And we should point out, I mean, we're just talking about the highlights here. I mean, people are saying, what about Kim Campbell? Where does she go? Well, she's not really part of this poll because it's sort of the the bigger names over the past 40, 50 years. It's people who did... uh, 
at least two mandates. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, and I apologize to the mission, I left that Louis St. Laurent, you know, which I didn't do in the last <laughs> poll. I don't know why that's the case, although I don't know that a lot of people have known who he was. But anyways, uh, you know, my bad on that. Fair enough. You can't do them all, Jack. We, no, we won't hold right. it against you. All right, thanks very much. Thanks. You take care. <laughs> That's Jack Jedwab, who is president of the Association for Canadian Studies. Here's an interesting one. And, and uh, I, I don't think Justin Trudeau is included in this polling either. Neither is John Turner. Neither is Kim Campbell. Like he said, uh, it's it's a it's he, he didn't do all of them. OK. So as we said, Hockey Canada has announced they are reopening the investigation into the 2018 incident, and uh, that's one of the steps that they're taking and making it mandatory for the players involved to um, speak to the investigators. Uh, It was voluntary before. Um, They're also going to bring in all kinds of training around consent and all the rest, which hard to believe that hasn't been done, but uh, that's going to be happening. The government putting a lot of pressure, demanding more answers, it just... It's a bit. It's a big, big deal. One of the things they said: once this investigation is completed, by the very same Toronto law firm that they hired back in 2018. Now, there's nobody saying the law firm did anything wrong in terms of the previous investigation. But what happens with it? Well, they're saying once it's done, that investigation has been completed, it will be referred to an independent adjudicative panel of current and former judges, who will determine the appropriate consequences which may include a lifetime ban from Hockey Canada activity on and off the ice. Now, still not talking about any criminal consequences for what happened. And that's the question a lot of people are asking is, how is there no criminal prosecution tied to this case? Um, Let's try and get some answers to that. We're going to speak with Mary Jane James, who is the CEO of the Sexual Assault Centre of Edmonton. Um, Mary Jane, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, Shay. Thank you for having me. Now, whenever we talk about this case, uh, we all ask why the men involved haven't faced any criminal investigation whatsoever. Now, from what I've read, the victim in this case decided not to speak with police, and therefore they closed their investigation three years ago. Now, so the question is, is that it? Um, in order for a sexual assault prosecution to go forward in Canada, does it require that the victim pursue those charges? Yes, it, it, it most definitely does, Shay. A, a victim 18 years of age and over, of course, a child right. or an adolescent, it's a different story. But yes, uh, the system is very much survivor-led, and um, and that is because, well, there's, there's a million reasons. But mm-hmm. first of all, I should point out that only about 5% of victims ever report what happened to them to the police. And why would that be? Um, Shame, blame, sure. all of all of that bundled up in a in a bow, and uh, the survivor has uh, just so much um, I- internal angst about what happened that to have to retell that story, not just in a courtroom, but likely in the eyes of the of the media, etc. There's just no way. And even of the five percent who do report, a very very small percentage ever see the inside of a courtroom. I mean, if you don't have a witness being the victim, then you don't have a case. So there's no way that the police can proceed with criminal charges without a, 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 a witness, a victim. So in this case, uh, like so many we see, 
she decided to proceed through the civil route, which is a much um, less onerous and less costly and less um, burden of proof involved. Um, and she got her settlement, which I'm sure involves some sort of non-disclosure agreement sure. where she can never speak about it again. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's good work on, on, on behalf of Hockey Canada that they're doing this investigation. It's a little bit of, you know, after the horse left the barn, mind you, but uh, better late than never. And, you know, what comes out of that will not be based criminally. It, uh, it, it Whatever is the sign for, you know, responsibility or guilt or whatever will be dealt with civilly and through their own their own hands. So, you know, words are words and actions are actions. And, and I certainly think this is a good step. Uh, it does sound a message loud and clear to, to victims that, uh, you know what, we are listening and, and we do care. But uh, the, proof is it, the proof is in the pudding for sure. So, so, Mary Jane, I think for a lot of us, and for me, a lot of us think, you know what, damn it, these guys need to be held to account. They need to be prosecuted for what they did. Are we missing, are, are we wrong here? Are we taking a look at, that's not what's important. We should be more focused on making sure the victim gets what she wants, obviously, but seeking, you know, some sort of justice for the um, alleged attackers in this incident. That's not what's going to work because she doesn't want that. And that's, that's completely fine. And that's her choice to make. It's probably not that she doesn't want it. She probably wants that. Has done the calculation and it's not worth it, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just, she, she just doesn't want to put herself through that. And when she drags herself through that mud, so many other people get drugged through that same mud. And, yeah. and yeah. then to get to that point where there just isn't enough evidence to proceed with a guilty, uh, you know, a guilty verdict, that just adds insult to injury. And there's just, so many layers of trauma going on in this uh, girl's body, heart, and soul right now. She just wants, I'm sure, to move on with her yep. life. Even with what we're talking about right now is re-traumatizing her. So, you know, the um, the uh, the issue of, of sexual violence within a uh, a culture of entitlement and power and privilege is not is not new by any stretch, nor is this sort of incident. This one seems to have caught the attention of of a lot of folks, mainly because it's a government funded initiative, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But this is not new, uh, Shay. This is this is very old news to me and anybody else who works with survivors. And and we just have to get our heads around the fact that you know right off the bat we hold perpetrators accountable and uh, stop looking for ways to excuse their behavior and trying to find ways to blame the victim. Whether we do it out loud or not, we all have. I've heard it already. I've heard, well, what did she go to the hotel room for? Well, sure. Well, yep. seriously, we, we cannot, if we're ever going to get through this, we cannot continue to think like that. It's pejorative. It's, it's, uh, it's harming. And, uh, and, and that poor girl has already been through enough. So let's take this as a lesson uh, of what has been allowed to go on within the culture of all sports for a very long time. And let's put a stop to it. And all of us have a part to play in that. I couldn't agree with you more. You, you said we need to hold the perpetrators accountable. 
Um, how do we do that, Mary? I mean, I, we have we have publication bans, we have those sorts of things. I mean, what more can we do to say, okay, these guys need to be held accountable? And clearly, that's part of the problem here is people are saying, well, Hockey Canada didn't do that. They kept it. We don't know the names. We don't know who was involved. We don't even know what went on. Um, we don't know how much money was involved, all these sorts of things. So if we want to hold the perpetrators accountable without putting the onus on the survivor to drive it and to re-victimize themselves, as you say... How do we do that? How can we make those two things work at the same time? I wish I had a straightforward answer for you, Shay, but I ask myself that every day. And when I'm pounding my fist on my desk, when I see so much injustice and miscarriage of justice uh, in our world, like I said, all you have to do is go back and read through transcripts of the of the cases that did make it before a judge and see just time and time again where you're wondering who's on trial here, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. perpetrator or the, or the victim. And if you ask me what it's going to take going forward, it's going to take guts, it's going to take determination, and it's going to take a we're not doing this and taking this anymore by the people in power. So by that I mean behavior is modeled from the top on down. Sure. If there's a message that this type of behavior is not and will not be acceptable no matter how talented of a hockey player you are, no matter if you're the superstar of all superstars, we're not going to accept it. And our first point of contact is going to be to believe the survivor. There's no way, Shay, that anyone would put themselves out there to make up a story of this horrendous magnitude. It's just... It makes me sick to my stomach, and I wish I could tell you that it's the worst and first time I've heard about it, but it's far from that. And this is shining a light on it. I hope the light continues to shine really brightly and bigger, and that we all find and get the message that hockey players are just that, basketball players, golfers, what you name it. They're just that. They're human beings who have to be held to the same level of human behavior as everybody else, despite the power and privilege that comes along with being a superstar. Yeah, fantastic points. Do me a favor, because you know I'm getting these texts, and and I'm sure you've answered this question before, and uh, you're very good at answering this question much better than I could, because I'm seeing the text saying, well, well, why? it's a cash grab. That's why, that's why she just did the civil no. lawsuit, but she didn't want to do any criminal prosecution. She was just after the money. Maybe she felt bad the next... I got a text literally, Mary Jane, saying maybe she just felt bad the next day and her and her family decided, well, we, could, we can make some money off this. Oh, my goodness. I have never heard anything so vomit-inducing in my life. Can you imagine being raped by eight people in a room and then saying, okay, well, that's done. I'm going to go see how much money I can get. Come on, people. This is why people don't come forward, because of comments like that. Of course she's not going for a cash grab. She's probably using the bulk of that money for the therapeutic counseling that she will need for the rest of her life. Excellent points. Mary Jane, I can't thank you enough for coming on, and uh, we'll continue to follow this along because I think you're right. It's this story is bringing a lot of emphasis, and, and and you know it's the big stories like this that sometimes can inspire lasting change for all of us. So maybe we'll stay on top of this. Let's hope so, Shay. And I really appreciate you bringing light to it. This is how change is impacted and affected: is by continuing to be on the stories, even when they seem to be dying out, and we're yeah, on to the yeah. next horrendous story. 
So thank you very much for that. Great points. Thanks, Mary Jane. Thanks so much. All right. Take take care. You too. Bye-bye. Janice White. Yes, science. Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. 1.21 gigawatts. Yes, Friday, we like to get science-y when we can. This is science-y, um, and you've heard this story before, I'm sure. We're going to be talking about solar flares, solar storms, all this sort of stuff. Uh, one week ago today... As you remember, this world was kind of turned upside down. Millions of people knocked off the grid, at least when it comes to cellular communications. So we had communications was down, 911 service was affected, a lot of businesses couldn't buy or sell things because Interact was down, thousands of people who work from home suddenly couldn't work from home. The list goes on and on. It was a big hit. It was a big deal. It caused a lot of problems. Well, imagine if that were to happen again, only bigger. Not just one carrier going down, but All of them, and not just cellular and internet, but everything, uh, communications, electricity, your landlines, all of it, gone. Uh, For years, people have been warning us, it's not a matter of if this is going to happen, it's a matter of when, one day, the solar storm will knock us right back to the Stone Ages. So what's the likelihood? What could happen? How does this all work? We're going to chat with Dr. Michael Byers, who is a Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of BC, also the co-director of the Outer Space Institute. Dr. Byers, thank you for joining us again. I appreciate it. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. Okay, so let's define what we're talking about here, because we've all heard this, solar flares, X-flares, solar storms. What are we talking about? What is this? Well, what I am most worried about is something called a uh, coronal mass ejection. Okay. So it, it's not a solar flare. Um, it's an eruption of, uh, of solar particles, of electrons and protons. Um, and uh, I mean, this happens all the time, um, but it doesn't strike Earth because it happens out of particular random parts of the sun. And so it, it in most cases, misses Earth. And it, it's complicated further by the fact that you know, the Earth is moving around the sun, so it's a uh, it's a bit of a, a Russian roulette uh, situation where uh, um, you know most of the time uh, these things pass harmlessly by, millions and millions mm-hmm. of miles away from Earth, and once in a while we actually are in the firing line. And the last time we were in the firing line of a, a really big uh, coronal mass ejection was back in the mid 19th century um, when uh, one of these hit Earth. Um, and the good thing was, in the mid-19th century, we didn't have a lot of high technology. Right. We, we, the only thing that went down were the telegraph lines, right? Because that was the only thing that was susceptible. Um, we had a, a, a minor one of these in uh, 1989, and it knocked out the electrical grid in Quebec for nine hours. Um, so at some point, we'll get a, a major um, a coronal mass ejection. It will strike Earth. And if we're not prepared, 
then it will be the Rogers outage times a thousand. Times a million, yeah, but, exactly. But 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 there is good news here, right? And and I want you know, don't panic, people. Um, <laughs> there are things that we can do to prepare that will dramatically reduce the damage. And that was uh, the point of an article I published in the Globe and Mail newspaper yesterday was a, a message to government uh, that you need to prepare for these. These these low probability, high consequence events. Right. Um, that this will happen. There's roughly a twelve percent chance per decade, and uh, and so let's get focused on preparation now. Okay. The science behind it. What happens? These coronal mass ejections. Um, why do they knock out uh, electrical or technological systems down here on Earth? What happens? Well, they they're, they're a, a massive influx of uh, of, of energy uh, into the the magnetic field and, and into the atmosphere. Um, so so essentially, it all becomes highly energized. So when we have one of these things, we get incredible aurora, uh, northern lights. So so back in the mid nineteenth century, uh, they were seeing northern lights in Hawaii and in Senegal in uh, Central wow. Africa. Because the, 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 the atmosphere was so incredibly energized. If we get a big one, the sky will turn red for about one week. Um, and, and again, you know, that, that's just the aesthetic thing. And yeah, I'm sure yeah. it would be really nice to see that. <laughs> but it also has the effect of, uh, of, uh, of transmitting massive energy flows to any kind of long conductor. Any kind of, of wire uh, is susceptible. So we're, we're talking about the electrical grid. We're talking about fiber optic cables that provide all the communications. Um, and we're talking about pipelines to, to some degree are, are susceptible, uh, although they're, they're protected uh, against the corrosion that, that can result. Uh, but essentially, our entire high-tech uh, uh, economy and society, uh, satellites are at incredible risk. All the electronics could get fried. So, you know, <laughs> goodbye uh, satellite communications and GPS in a worst-case scenario. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's essentially the, the, the dramatic influx of, of electrons and, uh, and, 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 and protons uh, into our, our, our system, our global system, uh, with the, these, these dramatic surges in direct current uh, that, that can knock things out. So on, yeah. on hydroelectric grids, on, on electrical grids, um, it's the transformers that, that convert the, 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 uh, the high voltage uh, used for long-distance communications into the, the low voltages used in business and, and in homes. Those, those transformers are on the front line of this. And uh, if they get fried, uh, they can take you know, years to replace. Um, so we, we start talking about solutions. How do we deal with the fact that yeah. our planet our planet is in orbit around this giant orb that is essentially a nuclear fission reaction? Yes. And every once in a while, it burps. And every once in a while, we get hit with one of these burps of high energy. And we've just made ourselves susceptible because, hey, we're smart. We've developed lots of electronics uh, to, to be at the center of our modern society. Okay, a uh, couple of questions. Transportation, cars, planes, boats, done instantly? They, they're, they're scrapped too? Uh, well, um, Probably, I mean, there's so many computers and there's so much tech and, and electrical in them. 
Yeah. Uh, well, in terms of airplanes, um, you know, they can they can fly without their electronics. True. Uh, true. The, the pilots have to work, but they're 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 required <laughs> to be able to fly without electronics. But they're going to have to land without air traffic control because they're going to lose their radio communications. Gotcha. Okay. Um, pilots can can do that. Um, yeah. I mean, your your onboard navigation, if you have it on your car, that that will be gone. Uh, any train that's powered by electricity, so uh, you know subways around the world are going to go down uh, because you'll lose electricity. Um, but it goes further than that, right? It's it, you lose the electricity in your home, but you'll also you know lose electricity in terms of the electrical pumps that pump the gasoline out of the storage tank at your local gas station. Right, right. So we'll have a fuel shortage uh, fairly quickly. Um, you know, Water the, the treatment, sewage plants, all that stuff. Then too. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the backup uh, generators at hospitals yeah. will kick in, but they'll run out of fuel eventually also. So, you know, the worst-case scenarios have us, you know, looking at, at, at a, a years-long recovery uh, from something like this, a massive hit to the global economy, and, and lots of people, you know, suffering uh, and even dying as a result. But again, there are ways we can... Yeah, let's talk about that. Like, are those things being done? What can be done? Well, the first thing we can we can do is we can build some resilience into to things like the electrical grid. So, so in Quebec, after uh, their storm in, in 1989, Hydro Quebec uh, put converters uh, on all their their transformers that, that essentially protect against these massive surges in direct current. So you can harden up your electrical grid. It costs money, um, and, and you might be spending money. Uh, you know, to protect against an event that doesn't happen for for decades, hopefully not for a century. But they've done it in Quebec, and and that should be done, you know, countrywide. Um, so there are some things that 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 we can do. We, you know, maybe hospitals should, you know, store more diesel fuel so they can run their their generators for longer in the event that we lose electricity for for weeks or or, or months, um, because that's pretty important. All the you know, high tech medical machines, you know, yeah. the dia- dialysis machines, the incubators, the respirators, you know, we need that to function. So we, we can prepare in, in those kinds of ways. But the, the core message that I want to get across is that the best way to deal with a scenario like this is to know that it's coming, to have a warning, and we will get a warning. We'll get a few hours because, okay. because NASA has a couple of spacecraft Locate it closer to the sun that will detect this coming and be able to tell us and give us some warning. When we get that warning from NASA and the U.S. government will circulate it worldwide, we need to put the country on safe mode. We what does that look to, like? We need to power down everything. So, so we need to have a, a procedure whereby the Canadian government and the government of Alberta, they all know when they get the warning from NASA, they turn everything off and they require companies to turn everything off. So we turn off the electrical grid. We turn off the cell phone network, right? We, we just power everything down. The satellites go on to safe mode um, and the storm comes and we have a week and then it's gone and we start turning things back on again. Um, now, that's a really big call that governments would need to make, right? <laughs> and, 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 and I don't think they've, they've prepared for having to make that call. I don't think they have the decision-making protocols in place. I, I, I doubt that the Premier of Alberta <laughs> has, has been walked through what he would need to do when the warning comes, right? I think you're absolutely um, right. And, and the conspiracy theorists would have a field day if we shut down the planet for a week. Can you imagine? 
Oh yeah, but <laughs> but 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 this is science, right? This is and and it's it happens. We we can go back and look at 1989. We can go back and look at what happened in the mid 19th century and other occasions. We know this is coming. Yeah. There's no need to panic. We we know you know how how we operate in our own homes, right? If, if the electrician's coming around to fix your central electrical system, you turn your computer off, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it it this this, this uh, pardon the pun. It's not actually rocket science, right? You get the warning, <laughs> you turn everything off, and yeah, some people will be upset, but the majority of people, if you explain it to them, will really appreciate the fact that you haven't put them back. To the Stone to Age. To the Stone Age instantly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, 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 for the next, you know, <laughs> two, three, five, ten years. Right? So it's um, a, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Right? Absolutely. We know this is coming. Let's get the decision-making protocols in place. Let get, let's get all the companies, all the utilities on board. And, and yeah, if in the worst-case scenario, we get the warning, a, a major solar storm, a, 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 a coronal mass uh, ejection is headed this way. We turn it all off. We pick up a book. You know, we sit back <laughs> in, in, in 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 the sunlight because you can't because nothing will be going yeah. on at dark, and 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 you just ride it out. Um, and we can manage a week, right? Uh, we sure. went through we went through a lockdown in the pandemic. We can do this. A week is not a problem. It's inconvenient. Gotcha. Yeah, Doctor Byers. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. But a, a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. I was welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.